Part 2 The police were going to do nothing to his friends. He wasn't forced up there. Such a primitive notion of force and accident and responsibility. I never told you this, but I went to see them, the boys. They hung around the disused tennis courts, so after I dropped you at the stables, I went to voice my feelings. They were there, all except him, Denny. I pulled up to the curb and wound down my window. I hope you're happy, I said, leaning out. I hope you had fun watching him die. I hope you sleep the innocent sleep, knowing you are soaked in his blood. They stood there behind the crossed wire, like thugs in a Bernstein musical. The shaven-headed boy with the sharp eyes made a rude gesture, but said nothing. Murderers! I yelled, before screeching off. And I didn't leave it there. The next evening I yelled the same accusation, and the next, and the next, but I never saw him. I never saw Denny there. Indeed, by the fourth time, I couldn't see any of them. I was yelling into nothing, accusing the air. Guilt had made them evaporate, I told myself. My words had moved them on. The strange thing is, I felt no satisfaction at this. My heart fell when I realized they weren't there, and my anger sank swiftly back to despair. From his early school reports, it was clear that your brother was not going to be a high achiever in an academic sense. There were none of the outstandings or exceptionals that always rained down on you, never a pleasure to teach or a joyous addition to the classroom. Reuben had no interest in books in the way you had. For him, reading never rose above the level of a necessary chore. He enjoyed my nighttime stories of Dick Turpin and all those other old rogues, as you both did. But once he had heard one story, he wanted to hear it again and again, whereas you always craved tales you had never known before. I see him now at the window, his finger making patterns in the condensation. A quiet boy, easily led. Money in this blind century has become the measure of love. A crude outsider would tell me I exercised more care for you because from the age of eleven I paid for your schooling. Yet what could I do? I could only pay for one of you. Should you have both suffered for the sake of equality? Was it my fault the Mount was a girls' school? Would it have been better to send Reuben, who had never shown any interest in his education? No, St. John's was the obvious choice for him. Yet, of course, I must admit this was not the only extravagance I afforded you. After all, you wanted to ride, so I paid for a horse and for it to be at livery. You wanted to play music, and I paid for you to have violin and then cello lessons at the college. You wanted a cat, specifically a coffee-cream Berman, and I bought you Higgins. Yet you were actively interested in these things. 
They weren't acquired out of any fatherly overindulgence, or, if they were, I would gladly have shown the same indulgence to your brother if he had only requested such presents. Where were Reuben's interests? I never had any idea. He wanted a bicycle, and the one I bought wasn't good enough. He wanted all this technological claptrap that he knew I wouldn't allow before he asked. No, we must never forget it. Your brother was not easy. Even in my grief I could not ignore this. Indeed, my grief required me to remember it very well, for I already knew how sentimentality can flood in and drown memories, leaving the true person beyond recall. I wanted to remember him as he was. I wanted to remember his incessant screams through the night as a baby, his later tantrums, his insatiable appetite for jellied sweets. I wanted to remember how cross he got when you used to read from the same picture book together. I wanted to remember the rows he had with you, even the one where he tore up your sheet music. I wanted to remember the way he used to sit and watch television, with his hand covering the birthmark on his face. I wanted to remember the cigarette incident, the shoplifting incident, the smashed vase incident. I wanted to remember the early Sunday mornings when you would both go with me to an antiques fair and he would grumble all the way down the A1. Yet the memories of him were always hard to relive and restore, when I thought of him, a thought of you would swiftly arrive in its place. When I tried to picture you as babies, as your mother last saw you, I wouldn't be able to see his screaming face. There was always just you, lying placid by his side, lost in your innocent, unworded dreams. A dream yourself. Now, that first day I opened the shop after his funeral, your first day back at the Mount. I kept myself busy polishing the ewers and tureens and all the other pieces of silverware. All day I was there in my white cotton gloves, filling the shop with the smell of polish, my curved reflection staring back with manic eyes. Customers came in, and I scared them out of spending their money. I made mistakes. I gave people the wrong change. I dropped a Davenport jug. I was feeling dreadful. Come on, Terence, pull your socks up, said Cynthia, helping out behind the counter. You've got my granddaughter to feed. I know I used to grumble to you about how she scared away the customers with her witch's nails and wardrobe and forthright manner, but really she was a great help. She tried to get things back for your sake, for all our sakes. Not just helping with the shop, but arranging things. I remember that first fortnight, how she bombarded us with events. They were something to hold on to, ledges in the cliff face, and the calendar became full of them. Her writing took over July, August, September, bursting out of date boxes with its capital letters and excessive punctuation. Bryony's Cello Lesson, Harrogate Antiques Fair, Nairsborough Horse Show. 
Then there was her special meal she was already planning for no specified purpose. I'm inviting my old Amdram friends, she said. We're going to the box tree. It's got a Michelin star, apparently, and just had a refurbishment. You have to book months in advance, so if I want it for August, I'm going to have to arrange it now. Do you both want to come? You were on the sofa in your jodhpurs, ready to go to the stables. Yes, I'll come, you said, much to my relief. Yes, Cynthia, of course, I said, realising how important it seemed to her. I'd love to be there. Very good, she said. I'll write it on the calendar. You said little in the car, en route to the stables. I remember leaving you there, and feeling what I had felt at the funeral, that strange sensation of departing myself, a leaking out of my soul, complete with the darkening sense of vision. And then on my return, of course, I saw him. Denny. It was getting dark, and so when I turned towards the paddock and saw this sweating figure in running clothes, shining pale in the car headlights, I thought it might be a hallucination. I blinked him away, but he was still there, staring straight at me. I got out and told him to leave. He walked away, giving me a look of steely resolution before continuing his run. Then I called to you, do you remember? And we had that row as we walked Turpin back to his stable. Apparently, you had no idea what he was doing there. Apparently, you hated him just as much as I did. Apparently, he'd never been to gawp at you before. You were perfectly convincing. And I was perfectly convinced, even if I had the sense that I'd been woken up to something. There was so much that was precious in my life that I had been leaving open and undefended. I'm sorry, Petal, I said. I shouldn't have raised my voice. And you nodded and watched the houses slide past, perhaps wishing you were behind their square golden windows, happily lost in another girl's Tuesday night. I remember trying to sort out your brother's belongings. I sat there, on his bed, and felt the foreignness of the room. Posters of films I had never heard of. Unfathomable technology I didn't even realize he owned. Magazines covered with women who didn't look like women. Women who looked so inhuman, they might have been designed by an Italian sports car manufacturer. I went through his school bag and found a letter he never gave me. It was from his headmaster, informing me that he had missed two of Mr. Weeks' history lessons. The letter dated from March, before Mr. Weeks had lost his job. I remembered him, from the time he had come into the shop with his wife and his son George, to buy the pine mule chest. A tall yeti of a man, who could have been quite a bully in the classroom, I imagined. It was strange, being in his room. Reuben's presence was so real, contained as it was in all those objects, those possessions that reminded me how little I had understood him. With Cynthia's help, we eventually packed a lot of stuff away in the attic. You helped with some of it, didn't you? 
though the thing I really need to tell you concerns his bicycle. As you know, I popped an advertisement in the window, offering it for £25. Within a day, a woman had called and arranged to come in and buy it for her son, a Scottish lady with a long face that reminded me rather of the Aboriginal statues on Easter Island. I was retrieving the bicycle from the shed when the darkness crowded around me and I again felt that peculiar sensation at the back of my brain. Only this time it was stronger. It was as though someone was turning a dial in my mind, sliding it across frequencies, trying to find a different station. The feeling was at its most intense as I patted the saddle and let the Scottish lady wheel the bicycle away from me. I stood there for a while, in this kind of vague trance, watching her roll it down the street. I stayed there until the bicycle disappeared and the sensation stopped, leaving my mind restored to its comforting mode of sadness. As your former hero, Pablo Casals, once put it, to be a musician is to recognize the soul that lives in objects. A soul that may be made most visible by a Steinway or a Stradivari, or may be most well expressed by a Bach or a Mozart, but that is always there in everything of substance. Of course, I am not a musician. I sell antiques, but the same knowledge applies. You sit all day in a shop with the old clocks and the tables and the chairs, the plates and the bureaus, and you feel just like them. Just another object that has lived through events it could not change, crafted and transformed, forced to sit and wait in a kind of limbo, its fate as unknown as all the others. A customer came in one afternoon, a bullish man of the Yorkshire mould, the sort of chap within whom arrogance and ignorance compete for top billing. He grumbled his way around from price tag to price tag, telling Cynthia and myself that he'd be very surprised if we'd get this much for an Art Nouveau figurine or that much for a reading table. Oh, said Cynthia, but it's Rosewood. Makes no difference, the man said. And it's early Georgian. Early Mesopotamian wouldn't justify that price. By that point, I'd had enough. There are two types of customer for antiques, I told him. There are those who appreciate an object's soul and understand that truly even the smallest items, the sauce ladles, the thimbles, the silver barrel nutmeg graters, can only ever be undervalued. These, I would call, the true aficionados, the people who appreciate all the lives that have grated with or worn or poured or sat at or cried near or dreamed upon or cried against or fallen in love in the same room as such things. These are the people who like to frequent an establishment such as cave antiques. He stood there, mirroring Cynthia's widening mouth and eyes, as unlikely to interrupt as the figure in his hand. The girl with the tambourine decorated in green and pink enamels. I bought it originally as part of a pair. The other one had dropped and smashed when I'd collided with the chest on my way to reach Reuben, the night he died. I continued, Whereas the other type, the type I might just see before me now, is the customer who sees an object as the sum of the materials with which it has been made, 
the customer who does not understand or acknowledge the hands that went into its making, or the centuries-long affection which various and long-dead owners have bestowed upon said item. No, these people are ignorant of such matters. They don't care for them. They see numbers where they should see beauty. They look at the face of a brass dial clock and see only the time. The man stood there almost as bemused as myself by this outburst. I was going to buy this for my wife's birthday, he said, placing the Art Nouveau figure back where it came from. But with service like this, I think I'll take my custom elsewhere. After he left, I had Cynthia to deal with. Terence, what on earth has got into you? Nothing, I said. I just didn't like the way he was talking to you. God, Terence, I'm old and ugly enough to look after myself. We just lost a sale there. I know. I'm sorry. It wasn't about him. I'm sorry. She sighed. You know what you need, don't you? I shook my head. You need to get away. You and Bryony. A holiday. I could look after the shop for a week. A holiday. Even the word seemed preposterous. A dancing jester at a wake, handing out picture postcards. It prompted a fleeting blink of a memory. Heading south on a French motorway, with you and Reuben asleep in the back. Your bodies curved towards each other like closed brackets. No, Cynthia, I don't think so, I said. But all afternoon the idea grew and grew. Maybe it wasn't so preposterous after all. Maybe this was our opportunity to restore things, to pick up all the broken pieces and put things back the way they once were. Yes, this was the chance to heal our fractured souls. Ever since the funeral, I'd been aware of slight changes to your behaviour. Instead of the sombre strains of Pablo Casals or your own cello, I would hear a different kind of music coming from your room. A violent and ugly kind of noise that I would ask you to turn down almost every evening. You rarely practised your cello now. You still went to your lesson at the music college every week, but when I asked how it went, I'd get shrugs or small hums in return. A friend I had never heard about, Imogen, suddenly became someone you had to call every evening. Your bedroom door would always be closed, and I would sometimes stand there behind it, trying to work out if you were on your bed or at your computer. I noticed once, when you stepped out, that you'd taken your poster of Pablo Casals down from the wall the old cello maestro who had always been such an inspiration. It seemed incredible. I thought that man was your idol. You had adored his interpretation of Bach's cello suites. You had even ordered that old footage from the library. Pablo, aged 94, conducting a special concert at the United Nations. The tiny old man, his time-creased face reflecting perfectly the strain and emotion of the orchestral movements until there seemed to be no difference between them, the man and the music, 
so that each refrain heard in that grand hall seemed to be a direct leaking of his soul. You had devoured his memoirs, and told me to read them too. The story I remember now was when he and a few companions walked up Mount Tamalpais, near San Francisco. Pablo was in his eighties, and had felt very weak and tired that morning, but to the bemusement of his friends had insisted that he still wanted to climb the mountain. They agreed to go with him, but then during the descent disaster struck. Do you remember that story? A large boulder had become dislodged further up the mountainside and was now hurtling towards them. The boulder missed all of his companions, but having seen it, Pablo froze. As it shot past, the giant rock managed to hit and smash Pablo's left hand, his fingering hand. His friends looked with horror at the mangled, blood-soaked fingers, but Pablo showed no sign of pain or fear. In fact, he was overwhelmed with a kind of relief, and thanked God he would never have to play the cello again. A gift can also be a curse, wrote the man who had felt enslaved by his art since he was a child. The man who had anxiety attacks before every single performance. This last fact, that had always comforted you when playing in public, and so it made no sense, with the annual York Drama and Music Festival not too far away, that you would want to take down his poster. A trivial issue, I suppose, but one I viewed as symptomatic of a broader change. Maybe I should have been firmer with you then. Perhaps I shouldn't have let you shut yourself away. At the time, though, I imagined this was your way of grieving. In tribute to the life of your brother, you were shrouding yourself in the same mystery. What I didn't realize was that this retreat would continue, that you would slip further and further away from me until the point at which I couldn't call you back. As I flicked through the travel section of the newspaper, I saw it a weak black-and-white photograph of the Colosseum. Price includes flights and six-night stay in the Hotel Raphael. The city of faith and antiquity and perspective, the place people go to mourn and accept the transient nature of human life, where old temples and frescoes outlive us all. Such was my thinking. Oh, pity the folly of a desperate mind. Do you remember that sunny evening we walked to Cynthia's and I had to stop halfway down Winchelsea Avenue? You asked me what the matter was and I told you I didn't know, that I just felt a bit dizzy. It was the feeling I had experienced at the church and when selling Reuben's bicycle. A darkening of vision, accompanied by a kind of tingling towards the rear of my skull. Similar, I suppose, to pins and needles, only this felt warmer as though tiny fires were raging through the dark spaces of my mind, generating sparks that wriggled and danced before losing their glow. And these fires were burning those parts of me that knew when and where I was, leaving me for a moment deprived of all identity. I turned to see the house I had passed, number 17, and it looked as depressing as all the others on the street. 
I told myself to keep my head. It was only a dose of the shudders, I reasoned, a result of frayed nerves and poor sleep, nothing more. Although, if you ever wondered why we never walked that way again, you have the reason. By the time we reached Cynthia's bungalow, I was feeling much better and quite hungry, although, of course, one can never be quite hungry enough for one of Cynthia's curries. It's an authentic Goan recipe, she said, as it slopped onto our plates. I printed it out from the computer. It was meant to be mild, but I'm worried I might have overdone it a little with the chilli. Oh, I'm sure it's fine, I told her as I tried to avert my eyes from the charcoal sketch of a nude on the table. We must have arrived before she had time to frame it, a study of creased female flesh from one of her life-drawing classes. Mmm, it's lovely, you said, enjoying your first mouthful. You actually sounded like you meant it. Cynthia smiled at you and seemed for a moment mildly entranced. Oh, good. Good. Not too hot. No, you said, although within five minutes you were in the kitchen topping up your glass of water. I've thought about what you said, I told Cynthia in a hushed tone as you ran the tap, and I think you might be right. I'm going to book a holiday. Good, Terence. Good. Have you told Bryony? No, I said. I'm going to keep it a surprise. Well, maybe you should consult her first. I shook my head. She's always loved to... You were back, drinking from your glass, feeling our admiring eyes upon your neck. Two old ducks in awe of a swan. Somehow we made it through the curry. A feat of endurance on all our parts, I imagine, and Cynthia tried to humour us with some of her old Amdram stories, it was on the opening night of the glass menagerie. Ray was in his toga. I was sitting in the green room. It was the third act. There I was, queen of the fairy. And someone broke wind in the audience. Oh, our faces. And then she went quiet keeping her dark lips in position even after her smile had died. For quite a while she stared into some indeterminate space between us as the sadness shone in her eyes. It was less than a year ago, wasn't it? she said after a while. When Reuben did his work experience at the theatre. I tried to think. Yes, it must have been. You had spent a week at the music college, arranged weeks in advance, while Reuben was still unsorted right up to the last moment. If it wasn't for Cynthia having a word with David Watsit, then he'd have been in all sorts of trouble at school. Yes, you said. It was a year ago. Your grandmother gave a sad laugh. Poor boy! having to do it the week of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dreamcoat, stuck outside looking after a donkey every day. Yes, I said. Yes. Did you ever see it? Cynthia asked me. You weren't there, were you, when he was struggling to push that bloody creature on the stage? No, I said. 
No, I had a meeting, I think. A dealer, I can't remember. You smiled a distant smile. I was there. Yes, Cynthia nodded. Yes, you were. You were. She saw you looking at her unframed sketch and waited for the silence to run its course. Now, I must tell you what happened at life drawing. 